You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a paper from the Dockland Encounters Symposium. This symposium took place in the National Maritime Museum of Ireland on the 22nd of June 2017. It was organised by Joanna Robinson. This episode features the paper by John Brannigan from University College Dublin. His paper, Down by the Docks, Late Modernist Fictions of Irish Seaports, was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Thanks to uh, Joanna for inviting me and for organising this uh, symposium, uh, and to Richard for his kind words at the beginning uh, as well. I think it's a, it's a terrific um, topic because, as Richard was saying, uh, we don't really think enough about docklands and about the social and the cultural elements of docklands. Uh, even as I began to do, when I started worrying about my paper frantically last week, I began to look up about, you know, well, how do you even define docks in relation to words like key or harbour or, you know, all those other words that we might use for, uh, for docks? Uh, certainly when I was growing up in Dundalk, we, we would have talked about going down by the docks, um, even though what we had effectively was a key, not docks. But there's that idea of the docks as actually um, signalling something that's a sort of broader cultural uh, sort of idea. And I want to talk a wee bit about that, about how you sort of define uh, the docks and how then we think about sort of um, dockland encounters in particular. Uh, this talk is um, part of a sort of broader project that I'm involved in uh, about the Irish Sea uh, and particularly thinking about the sort of cultural heritage around the Irish Sea and the sort of relationship between culture and ecology uh, in the Irish Sea. And I think, you know, I find this with uh, my students, bringing them to, we bring them down here to, to see the museum. Um, one of the things they're used to thinking about in Ireland is when we think about the sea, we tend to think about the West Coast uh, we think about Kurrocks and we think about the sort of um, the, the sort of uh, wild Atlantic uh, as our sort of primary sort of sea encounter. But having grown up on on the Irish Sea, I always thought this was the kind of you know neglected, uh, less loved uh, sea. And I was interested in why that was. What are the kind of um, uh, images and ideas about the Irish Sea? I mean, certainly when I was growing up, I was told that you couldn't swim in the Irish Sea because of uh, Sellfield and um, Windscale and the sort of, you know, it's a radioactive sea and all that sort of stuff. But also the sort of association of the Irish Sea with a kind of industrial past uh, as well, uh, with pollution and shipping and it being much more of a kind of, uh, you know, sea connected uh, across with Britain and so on. So we're kind of interested in this idea about the sort of neglect of the Irish Sea. Uh, and its kind of cultural uh, meanings and so on. And one of the things I'm interested in is how uh, the ports and docks around the Irish Sea connect with each other. Uh, so, for example, uh, one of the work, one of the pieces of work I did was on James Joyce and the Irish Sea, and looking at the ways in which Joyce represents um, the docks and, and the um, you know the ships coming into Dublin. Whenever Joyce's characters go near the docks, they think of Norwegian sailors. Um, but actually, when you get down to the sort of history of what was going on, for example, on June 16th, 1904, which is the day of, uh, on which Ulysses is set, actually the vast amount of shipping coming into the port was Irish Sea 
shipping. It was coming across from Whitehaven and from um, Ard Roston and Air and tiny little ports, many of which don't uh, even exist anymore. So I was sort of interested in that idea about the sort of history of the Irish seaports connecting with each other. So in his book, The Human Shore, the historian John Gillis has argued that a fundamental shift took place in the late 20th century in the way in which modern Western societies engaged with the waterfront in cities and towns. As docklands ceased to be spaces of maritime labour, contact and transit, they became at first extensive spaces of dereliction and waste and then were reinvented as financial hubs and affluent residential developments. And as Neve Moore Cherry's book on the Dublin Docklands shows, this was a kind of process that was not just particular to Dublin, it was taking place in lots of other uh, ports around the world. It was a kind of you know, well-trodden sort of path for this kind of reinvention uh, of the Docklands. With the rapid spread of containerization in the 1960s, the global movement of goods became almost invisible as ports moved out of the cities to discrete, secure sites, and the containers themselves concealed their cargo completely within. With mechanization of the transfer of these intermodal containers from ship to road and rail, the dock systems at the heart of major cities became more or less redundant, as did the thousands of skilled dock workers who formed distinctive working-class communities in those cities. And for Gillis, these uh, developments entailed what he calls a colossal act of forgetting. Uh, and that chimes in, I think, with what Richard was talking about more broadly, as a colossal act of forgetting uh, the sea uh, in Irish culture. But Gillis talks about this colossal act of forgetting, which erased the history of human labor, trade, and cultural encounter, and turned the waterfront into a mere property asset. And Gillis writes that, never have shores been so rich in property values and so impoverished in what had once made them the first home of humankind. And it's an argument made visually poignant in Alan Sekula's film, The Forgotten Space, if you know that film, which narrates the paradox of a global modernity intent on rendering invisible the maritime transport upon which it so crucially depends. So Gillis writes, today's waterfront residents have no occupational connection to water, emphasizing that this marks out the waterfront as a space now cut off, not only from its natural environment, but from its own history. And that's precisely where I think we're focusing today on the sort of uh, cultural heritage and cultural history of those spaces, uh, of, of that sort of history of maritime encounter. So the specific history of those uh, Dockland communities, um, the specific history of those Dockland communities is one which can be traced, therefore, between two major industrial innovations, which I'm attempting to represent on this slide from the left uh, to the right, as moving from the development of the wet or floating docks in the early 18th century, the Liverpool example of which the old dock you can see represented here on the left-hand side, uh, then through to the container revolution, as it's often called, of the 1960s. Since the invention of the first commercial wet dock system in Liverpool in 1715, docklands, you could argue, have been an iconic and integral part of industrial modernity. The dock system, as pioneered by Thomas Steers, enabled ships to berth and unload within an enclosed dock locked against the falling tides. Ships were no longer limited to unload and load cargo within the high tide, or compelled to offload cargo, cargo onto lighters uh, in anchorages. 
Enclosed docks provided more, ship, more space for ships and cargo than the medieval quaysides that they replaced. And the dock system also enabled a more effective systemization of customs, labor, and goods. It was the dock system, you could say, which enabled Liverpool to become the hub of Britain's trading empire, with all that that entailed for slavery, for plantation, for colonialism. By the mid-19th century, Liverpool had expanded its wet dock system to encompass seven continuous miles along the Mersey. And this was the Liverpool which Herman Melville described in his novel uh, Redburn from 1849, where he wrote, nothing can exceed the bustle and activity displayed along these quays during the day. Bales, crates, boxes and cases are being tumbled about by thousands of labourers. Trucks are coming and going. Dockmasters are shouting. Sailors of all nations are singing out at their ropes. And all this commotion is greatly increased by the resoundings from the lofty walls that hem in the din. Surrounded by its broad belt of masonry, each Liverpool dock is a walled town, full of life and commotion, or rather, it is a small archipelago, an epitome of the world. Here are brought together the remotest limits of the earth, and in the collective spars and timbers of these ships, all the forests of the globe are represented, as in a grand parliament of masts. And I like this quotation because I think it gives us several sort of key ways in which the docks tended to be thought about uh, in modern literature. First of all, the admiration of the industry, that this is a sort of hive of activity and business, uh, if you like. So that if you wanted to see uh, modernity at work and how powerful a country was or a, or, a, or a city was, you could come down to see the docks. Also that encounter with other peoples, the sort of the docks as a sort of cosmopolitan space. Here he represents it in very ideal terms as a sort of parliament of masts that come together in the, in the docks. So the idea of the docks as somehow a sort of transnational space or an international uh, space in which you encounter all these uh, different peoples. And also this sense that the dock itself is a kind of self-enclosed area, a walled town. Um, as, as uh, Melville calls it here, that it is a, an epitome uh, of something, that it emblematizes something in its enclosure as well. So Melville's depiction belongs to that great tradition of what Alain Corbin describes as the harbour picturesque, in which the harbour was simultaneously, Corbin says, a stage on which the traveller made his entrance and an ethnological museum of people from diverse classes and ethnicities. And Corban specifically discusses the tradition of port paintings. Uh, and in particular, he's talking about um, this artist, Joseph Verne. Uh, probably one of the most famous works by Verne is this Interior de Port de Marseille. And um, he, he's sort of uh, thinking about um, how the sort of the port painting or the harbour picturesque, you describe it, captures this idea of, you know, as Joanna was saying earlier, about the, the framing, the way in which a harbour or a dock frames a particular experience. In this case, for, for Corban, the sort of the arrival of the traveller. For Corban, that's almost always a kind of privileged traveller. So this is not somebody who kind of, you know, uh, has come in on one of the ships as a, as a dock worker uh, or as a, or as a uh, seafarer, uh, but as a passenger. 
right? So it's the sort of encounter with other lands. And it's this sort of idea about of looking at the scene uh, of busyness and so on. There's a wonderful moment in um, Charles Baudelaire in Paris Spleen where he talks about the joy of um, relaxing down by the docks and watching everybody else being busy when you yourself are idle, right? So it's that kind of privileged kind of mode that Verne is depicting here, the splendor of this scene of all of the sort of uh, colors of the different peoples, uh, their clothes, their wares, and so on, and the whole of the world being displayed on this dock. That's what uh, Corbin's particularly sort of interested in this moment of the harbor picturesque. So the busyness and diversity of the port were measures of its esteem and the esteem of the kingdom that it served. As Christopher Harvey argues in his book, A Floating Commonwealth, Liverpool was a key part of an arc of port cities, together with Bristol, Cardiff, Swansea, Dublin, Belfast and Glasgow, arrayed around the Irish Sea, which constituted, uh, Harvey writes, the marine antechamber to industrial Britain. The vast bulk of British wealth from trade and industry was articulated through these cities. And it was this region of the British and Irish Isles, which Harvey says more than any other, changed and was maimed by world history, reflecting on its industrial and imperial heights, but then also its descent into economic and political crises in the late 20th century. Yet the heritage of that maritime labor, which Melville described in Liverpool, and which was just as much an essential part of that arc of port cities around the Irish Sea, seems sometimes as invisible and forgotten as the maritime labor which sustains global capitalism today. It survives in the industrial archaeology uh, of its uh, ports and docks, of course, in the museums and preserved uh, ships. Uh, this is a, a photo I've, I've taken from uh, Bristol, which is... Um, you know, has some splendid examples of the sort of maritime archaeology, all the sort of dockware is still there, the, the shed, which is a fantastic uh, museum, uh, and then various kinds of ships uh, on display, uh, of course, around. So, you know, sometimes we do a good job of preserving uh, that heritage, particularly in terms of its, um, uh, its archaeology, its ships, and so on. It survives also in the buildings of former hostels, pubs, and of course, mariners' churches, such as the one we're privileged to uh, enjoy today. And I would join with Richard in paying tribute to the work here of uh, all the volunteers in preserving that heritage and uh, making it available for people to see. Uh, and I should add, by the way, that you know Richard was mentioning that I bring the students down here uh, every semester. Um, what he didn't say was that the students, to some annoyance to myself, always enjoy coming to the museum far more than they enjoy my classes. <laughs> That's largely uh, down to Joe Varley down the back, who gives them a wonderful guided tour. Uh, and this, uh, I get a module review at the end of every semester, which says, favorite part of the module, the museum trip. Great. Um, forget all the other classes. You know. <laughs> um, but you can see why it brings the sea alive to them. It's a way of connecting them to that heritage. They read Melville, they read Conrad and so on, but until they come down here and actually you know, see the heritage around them and get to learn about the sort of nautical language and so on, and talk to Joe about what it was like to, to be at sea and so on, they don't quite have that sense of connection. 
So it's really important that the museum does that job. That heritage, I want to suggest also that the heritage of uh, maritime labor uh, and, and sort of maritime communities as well also survives in literary representations. The cultural heritage of the shore and of the sea is not just then about ships and artifacts and buildings, but about people and about ways of life. As Peter Howard and David Pinder have argued, the heritage of the coastal zone includes the entire culture of how to use it and indeed how it was used in the past. Dock structures are important then, but so too are the ways of life associated with docks, from distinctive aspects of language, song, folklore, and diet, to the forms of social organization and social identity, particular to dockside communities. And literature, I think, is a rich source for understanding these more intangible forms of cultural heritage. So I want to exemplify this point a little today just by talking about two writers from the late modernist period in the 1920s and 1930s writing about Dublin and Liverpool, Liam O'Flaherty and James Hanley, and specifically how they write about Docklands from the perspective of its inhabitants as spaces of confinement, exploitation and precarity. Against Melville's idealised view of the docks and Corban's privileged traveller, so think about Baudelaire lounging at the dockside looking at the industry while he's being idle. These writers offer us instead a more critical representation of docks as profoundly ambivalent social spaces. Liam O'Flaherty came from the Aran Islands and travelled widely as a soldier and then as a stoker on merchant ships. He turned to writing in the early 1920s and achieved success with his novel The Informer, published in 1925, which is set in the crowded warrens along the docks of the Liffey, which was, of course, close to the setting for Joyce's nighttime episode in Ulysses and O'Casey's uh, Dublin trilogy. And they're all roughly around the same time, Ulysses 1922, uh, the Dublin trilogy by O'Casey 1923 to 1926. So it's interesting that sort of uh, you know, coagulation, if you like, of, of um, representations of the sort of area around the docks during that period. The informer tells the story of Jippo Nolan, a member of a revolutionary organization who, out of desperate hunger and poverty, betrays a former comrade to the police, but is then a hunted man. The key to Jippo's actions and his downfall in the novel is the physical and economic environment of the Docklands. He's constantly shown to be enclosed and constrained by his slum surroundings, assaulted sometimes as much by the fog, the darkness and the rain as he is by his enemies. At one end of the slum lies the canal bridge, where the road disappeared abruptly over the horizon, as if it had fallen over a precipice into space. At the other end, the dark water of the tidal river. And this is what O'Flaherty is very much showing, is this sense of the Docklands area. Here, here we're looking at the space between the Spencer Dock, the canal, uh, on your right here, and the inner dock and the railway uh, on the left-hand side. There's also a similar story told about the East Wall area, that you're really enclosed by all of these things. You're living in a little enclave. You're, you're kind of close to the city centre, but you're also in this little enclave, marked off by the canal, the railway, the, the docks, and so on, and sort of confined into this space. And this watery enclosure offers no way out for Jippo. The port and the canal, the roads and the railways present no opportunities for escape. 
ports are hubs and gateways, exposing their hinterlands to other cultures and people. But as nodes of global capitalism, they also expose their hinterlands to the predatory excesses of the sea economy. O'Flaherty's slum dwellers are dockers, prostitutes, tramps, and carters. Casual workers, casual criminals, and broken old men, he writes, for whom the port's only virtue is to bring in the sailors upon whose money they depend. It's this dockland geography which provides such an integral element of O'Flaherty's plot. For such characters, there's no romance to sea life, there's no choices made available by routes across the sea. As O'Flaherty observed in his own account of his brief life as a seaman, ships merely provide other forms of low-paid, hard labour and connect port slums with other port slums. With the £20 reward in his pocket, Jippo cannot summon the agency which this money should have afforded him to leave the slum streets of Dublin Docklands, and even if he could, no alternative destination is ever made apparent. In fact, he very much spends the £20 that he gets. If you know the novel or you've seen uh, John Ford's film, he, he blows the 20 quid an extraordinarily quick amount of time, very much similar to the three-day millionaire that Richard was, was talking about. John Ford's film version of the novel presented this impossibility of escape um, in a scene in which Jippo stares through a shop window, gazing at the model of a passenger ship, you can just see it up on the left there, above which hangs a sign advertising £10 to America, a fantasy image of he and his prostitute girlfriend, Katie, newly married and celebrating on the ship's deck, fades on and off the screen. The model ship, we've got some fantastic examples here, encased behind a window, makes the idea of escape seem a futile childhood game. It accentuates rather than relieves Jippo's entrapment. John Ford himself was brought up in the Docklands district of Portland in Maine. And so part of the appeal of O'Flaherty's novel for Ford was his familiarity with the social and cultural life of dockside communities. Indeed, part of what I'm arguing here is that as social and cultural spaces, Docklands are as much interconnected in space and time with other Docklands as they are with their urban, regional, or national hinterlands. And as such, Docklands are a significant topological site in modernist literature. There's little about O'Flaherty's slum setting and destitute characters that could not have emerged from the New York Bowery of Stephen Crane's Maggie, for example, from 1893, or the back of the yards Chicago district of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle from 1906, or indeed, as I'm going to talk about now, from the work of James Hanley. Now, James Hanley's a complicated figure. He claimed to have been born in Dublin. In fact, he wasn't. He was born in Liverpool. Um, he was the son of a ship's Stoker and was one of 12 children, six of whom died as infants. And that claim to be born in Dublin was part of a sort of ongoing attempt by Hanley to sort of constantly figure himself as an Irish writer who just happened to be uh, in Liverpool, uh, if you like. And he, he sort of has an ambivalent sort of, uh, you know, uh, history of, of sort of what he claims and what he sort of, uh, how he portrays himself in his, in his literature throughout. Um, but his parents settled in Kirkdale in Liverpool in 1891, from where Hanley's father got work at sea. And as such, the Hanleys were following a well-established pattern of Irish settlement in Liverpool, in the north of the city where the main concentration of residents were Liverpool Irish Catholics and closely tied to labour in the docks or at sea. And the young James Hanley witnessed in his formative years the sectarian riots which took place uh, in the city in 1909 and the brutal repression 
of the general uh, transport strike in Liverpool of 1911. Scenes of both sectarian violence and industrial violence recur frequently uh, in his writings. But Hanley was just 13 when he left school and worked first in shipping offices before he enlisted in the Merchant Navy. During the First World War, he served on the ships crossing the Atlantic with troops and supplies from Canada and the USA, and then he jumped ship to serve in the Canadian Army. He was invalided out of the Army after suffering from gas poisoning on the Western Front, and he returned to the Merchant Navy in 1919 before taking to writing in the early 1920s. And he became a prolific and controversial writer whose early work was recognised as part of an emerging generation of working-class writing, and which differed from much of that writing in its embrace of modernist narrative techniques. Liverpool and the Liverpool Irish community in particular was to form a most important part, uh, most important setting, rather, in Hanley's early work. His first novel, Drift, highlights the intensification of ethnic markers within a volatile labour market. And one of the recurrent images in the novel conflates the Irish immigrants arriving in Liverpool with the cattle arriving over from Ireland also. It's a sort of enduring image, I suppose, of the docks in both um, Dublin and uh, Liverpool. Um, even in Dundalk, where I grew up, we were used to seeing cattle coming through the town to the docks uh, at that point, you know. Um, so here he says the, the Rooks, uh, or this family in the novel, are described as arriving on a cattle boat. They weren't blessed with too many of this world's goods, and they had to get among the bulls and cows. They were pretty clever, too, because they were able to make themselves look like bulls. Hanley describes some of his characters as having bull-like features, both physical and emotional, and the equation of cattle brought for the slaughter and people brought for exhausting labor is repeatedly made. That Joe's father, Mick, works in an abattoir is only one of many signs in the novel of the precarious fate of the poorest sections of the Liverpool Irish. Hanley's characters inhabit a Liverpool which has more in common with the ports it's connected to across the seas. In The Furies, for example, published in 1935, the first of a series of five novels, all of the family's movements and communications take place through the port. Through ships, the Furies are connected to their family relations in Cork, Belfast, and New York. What Hanley shows in his sagas of Liverpool Irish life is the social experience of living in a seaport which function materially and symbolically as a hub of the transatlantic system of trade and capital accumulation. With the ships and the migrants, however, culture followed too. And it's these archipelagic flows of literary and cultural production which excuse me, we've not yet learned to track fully. One of the odd things, I think, when you're reading Hanley's work set in Liverpool is that there's almost no sense of the, uh, the hinterland for Liverpool. There's no sense of where the wealth is coming from, up from Manchester or from Lancashire and so on. It's almost as if Liverpool is a little island that faces entirely out to sea. And the, the, all of their uh, communications, all of their, their sort of uh, uh, jobs and so on come from the sea. So everything faces uh, into the sea. Hanley's depictions of Liverpool were almost always as a kind of expressionistic nightmare, such as we find in his novel Drift. So here he says, And always ascending towards the heavens, the clouds of smoke and grease and steam, the city was heaving up its guts. There it lay like some huge beast. Meanwhile, Joe was tramping along in the direction of the river, 
The pavements were aflood with life, and the cold tang of dawn one saw it in the pinched blue faces. On they swept, swarming miraculous life, the human ambulance, a mighty phalanx sweeping down, down, down. And there's constantly this focus in Hanley's work on crowds, crowds of people, crowds of men, the riots that he witnesses and so on, emblematize the sort of danger uh, of those crowds and so on. In um, Boy, perhaps his most uh, famous and controversial novel, which was banned uh, in the early 1930s, uh, there's this scene when the, the character Joe Fearon goes down to find his, his father. He says, crowds of men were standing outside the gates, this is the dock gates, smoking, chatting together, some were even lying on the floor. These appeared to be old men, and their labours had apparently left them as helpless as babies. The boy could not help but notice the various expressions on their faces, and noticing them he felt a sadness in his heart that all these old men should still have to work like young men. He had seen them fighting each other like wolves on winter mornings. He had seen them practically on their knees begging for a day's work. He remembered when he was at school his teacher had always impressed upon the boys that Liverpool was one of the great ports of the world. And that seems to juxtapose a kind of childhood innocence of, you know, sort of being educated to think of Liverpool as the great ports of the world, and here he sort of discovers uh, this sad and stark reality. But that teacher who tells him this has his own part to play in brutalising Arthur Fearon, so it's not quite a childhood uh, innocence uh, either. Instead, it makes a more subtle point about the role of education, I think, in interpolating children into this idea of the port as a sort of symbol of empire and so on. Uh, he's certainly um, you know, led uh, into this life from um, the streets and docks of the city down into the bilges and boilers of the ships and beyond them to the ports which connect up a global trading empire. I don't know if, has anybody ever read Boy by Hanley? Yeah, it's, it's pretty grim. There's no happy ending in it whatsoever. It just gets worse and worse and worse <laughs> and worse. Uh, I won't tell you how he dies in case you, you, you ever read it or feel inclined. Um, but it, 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 uh, this is part of what I'm talking about, this sort of expressionistic nightmare. What Hanley sees in the docks is not anything like Melville's vision uh, of the Parliament of Mass and you know the great greatness of industry and all that sort of stuff. He sees the sheer misery uh, of this life for working class people which can go from uh, dingy streets into... Uh, the bilges of, of ships and out to ports in which they die horrible deaths. Now, Liverpool in the 1920s was already well into its long decline from Victorian eminence, and the brunt of this decline is evident in the precarious and slum conditions of its working-class inhabitants. In Hanley's family saga about the Furies, they're dependent upon the old-age pension of Fanny's invalid father, their, their sailor son's allotment money, and the possibility of compensation. The Furies begins with news which has come from a cable telegram of their son, Anthony, having fallen from the mast of his ship onto his feet. And it begins then with his mother uh, going to the shipping offices, you know, magnificent municipal architecture uh, down along the, the front in Liverpool, and being completely overwhelmed and overawed by the magnificence of this building, the grandness of this sort of encounter uh, with um, the shipping uh, officer um, to try and get news of her son, but also the allotment money uh, 
which is owed to him for for his injury and so on. So that sort of dependence is shown through the sort of figure of the, the mother, Fanny. Um, and she herself has a kind of crisis then uh, of, of kind of thinking about the sort of grimness of this life, which happens in a moment in the novel in which she looks out the window. Uh, she stood by the window watching the men shoveling heaps of bones onto trucks, which in turn were pushed through the mill. She had never before evinced an interest in this proceeding. Now, for some strange reason, she could not take her eyes off these men as they piled the bones into the filled trucks. Beyond this yard, she could not see. If she looked higher, she beheld a sea of roofs. And the figures here of a reduced visibility, of deafening noise, the pervading stench which revolve around this bone factory, tighten Hanley's focus upon the symbolic ways in which the Furies' home and all the working-class homes of Liverpool are made porous and vulnerable, unable to keep out the industrial and commercial economies upon which they depend. And what Hanley, what Hanley, I think, is depicting in his Liverpool fictions is the social experience of living in a seaport which functioned materially and symbolically as a hub in the transatlantic system of trade and capital accumulation. Um, so just to conclude then, to wrap up what I'm saying, I think, about both of these figures, O'Flaherty and Hanley, for both of them, I think, docklands are precarious and dangerous social spaces. On the one hand, there's zones of social and cultural contact, busy uh, hubs of industry and commerce, which can join people, goods, and ideas from all over the world. On the other hand, it's the same porous quality which makes them intensely subject to the flows of labor and commodities which characterize modern capitalism and makes them vulnerable and hazardous. In his novel Blue Funnel Voyage East, Richard Woodman, which Joe Varley told me about many years, and is a fantastic novel, Richard Woodman captures the final years of uh, merchant shipping before containerization, the years in which it became abundantly clear that the docks and dock workers and merchant sailors and the communities that depended on them would soon pass into history. Now, for Woodman, there's nothing especially sentimental or tragic about the end of this way of life. When his novel concludes with the return of the ship to Liverpool, the sailors are greeted with the sight of a grey and uninspiring dockland, an indifferent landscape, which appears to mock the pride with which the sailors have prepared the ship for arrival. He quotes finally from Joseph Conrad's remark in The Mirror of the Sea, that the seamen of the future shall be not our descendant, but only our successor. And likewise, the docklands and ports of our time are the successors, certainly, but not the descendants of the docklands which existed throughout the modern era from the 18th century to the late 20th century. What we can trace, I think, in the literature of the docklands is a contentious history of casual and often precarious labor, labor of poverty and strife and of social outcasts and outlaws. Docks were an attempt to order relations between land and sea, between human civilization and wild nature, and to organize borders, trade, labor, and migration. Literature reminds us that they never quite succeeded in doing this, that they retained always something of what Rachel Carson argued was the constitutive propensity of the shoreline to be ephemeral and transitory, even when they're at their most modern and industrious. Anyway, I'll leave you with that image. <laughs>